0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachub, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Dr. Cassie Holmes is the professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. Trained as a social psychologist, she earned her PhD at Stanford's GSB and her BA at Columbia, my alma mater. An award-winning teacher and researcher on the role of time in cultivating happiness and satisfaction in life, Holmes's work has been widely published in lead academic journals and featured in such outlets as NPR, The Economist, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many, many more. And today, she's here to chat about her latest and first book. It's your first book, right?
1: It is my first Latest book. and
0: first, so it's both. The call, titled The Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. Cassie, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Jason. I'm excited to join you.
0: Yes, excited to have you. I found your book to be fascinating, and you know, you start off the book by saying our most precious resource is not money; it's it's time, Uh, which we all know. Yet, uh, we all have trouble managing our time. And (laughs) can you just spend a moment setting the stage in terms of the relationship between time and happiness
1: it's so tightly linked and um and when you think about it the hours that we spend in our day add up to our years and our life overall and so it's really how we invest those hours, how we engage in the time that we're spending, that is so determinant of happiness. And when I say happiness, I'm referring to what we talk about in the literature as sometimes, um, as researchers call it, subjective well being. But it's basically the joy we experience in our days and the satisfaction we feel about our lives. So it's this emotional component of how we're experiencing and feeling in the time we spend, and also this evaluative, sort of cognitive dimension of how we are feeling about the time that we spend. Um, and this is what I've been studying throughout my career and have sort of figured it out, but that wasn't always the case and really what drove me um, in my research pursuit and agenda and really sort of underlying this book Um, was one of those instances in which I absolutely had not figured it out. And my relationship and experience of time was a great source of unhappiness. And so I can share that with you now or later.
0: Yeah, please do.
1: Yeah, and so it's it's actually a story that I um, opened the book with um, earlier in my career when I was um, on the faculty at Wharton living in Philly. And it was just one of those crazy days that I'm sure so many people can relate to in the fact that it was hectic and hurried and busy. And I had um, taken the train up to New York that day to give a talk on my research my presentation was sort of sandwiched within back-to-back meetings, and then I was rushing to this uh, colleague dinner. Um, And then when the dinner ended, I looked at my watch and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I jumped in a cab. And as you know, being a New Yorker, when cabs were still there before Ubers, cab drivers drive fast. New York cab drivers, and I do not yell, but I was yelling at this guy who was already driving too fast. Like, Hurry up. I need to make my train, and it was the very last train that would get me home to my four month old and my husband in Philly. And I did make the train, but I remember so vividly, like sitting on the train that night, I was just so stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed. And I was looking out the window, and as everything was passing by so fast, the the sort of darkness, the uh, you know, the houses where people were asleep like I should have been. Um, it was all going by so fast. And I was like, I don't know if I can keep up, right? Between the pressures of work, of wanting to be a good parent, wanting to be a good partner, wanting to be a good friend, the never-ending pile of chores, there simply wasn't enough time. And I wanted more time, not just to get more done, but hopefully do have the sense of doing any of it well and actually being able to slow down and experience the time that I was spending. And so it was at that moment that I was like, I don't think, I think that time is my biggest limiting factor for my happiness and satisfaction. And this is something that I need to figure out. and at that point, I thought my, the solution was clear that I should quit. <laughs> I should quit my job that I'd worked so hard for um, and move to a sunny, slow-paced island somewhere where I would have a whole lot more time to do whatever I wanted, and then I would surely be happier. Um, and then I've actually since gone on to test that before I sort of marched into my chairman's office and told him I was leaving my job. I was like, would? Would? I'd be happier if I had a whole lot more time. Are people who have a whole lot of discretionary time are very happier? Um, And this was, it's an empirical question and actually one that I went on to test. Um, And what we found in looking at what is the relationship between the amount of discretionary time folks have and their happiness, the results showed an upside down U-shape So on the one hand, those with too little time are less happy. So the slope is like the end is down on that side. So that was me on the train that night. Um, That is what so many people can relate to is that feeling of not having enough time. And from that, we feel stressed. And from that, we feel unhappy. But what was really interesting was the other side of the graph where it's also going down when people had a whole lot of discretionary time in their day, they were also unhappy. And there is such thing as having too much time and digging into like, why is that? How could that be? Um, what it, we found is that people well were driven to be productive. Um, we are averse to being idle. And when we spend the hours of our days with nothing to show for those hours or nothing to feel satisfaction from those hours, that undermines our sense of productivity. It undermines their sense of purpose. And from that, we feel less satisfied. So that is a clear answer to certainly me on the train that night and so many in those like crazy moments of like, I don't think I can do it. I should quit whatever it is quitting would be um, so that I'd have a whole lot more time. And the answer is no, it's actually not about having a whole lot more time. And really it's about how we invest the time that we have. And that is actually what led, I sort of shifted my research agenda to test that question. How should we invest the hours of our days So that at the end of the days, instead of looking back and feeling depleted and exhausted and overwhelmed and unhappy, like I did on the train, we look back and even if we're pretty busy, we feel fulfilled and satisfied and excited for tomorrow to do it, you know, to do more.
0: So much to unpack there. And I'm so glad you touched on having too much time because many of us, including myself at various times in my entrepreneurial journey, have dreamed of this day where I'm going to be sipping a margarita on the beach and I can stop working so much. But that leads to, you know, uh, the same issue. And and I, I think there's there so many studies pointing to declines, whether it's cognitive decline or health decline post-retirement and it, it makes sense. And so with that said, we've got, I'm burnt, I'm working too much, I have too little time, and then I've got too much time. So then the question is, what is what is the sweet spot? So like I think of it like quantity in terms of the sweet spot and then quality, because as you point out in the book, clearly all buckets, if you will, of time are not equated equal you know, I think about, you know, work, I think about play, I think about purpose, I think about kids, family, there are lots of great buckets, but how do you think about quantity and quality and, and what is that sweet spot?
1: Yeah, so in our data, the the graph that I described came out of our analysis um, of the American Time Use Survey, which captures for tens of thousands of working and non-working Americans, how they spent a regular day. And from that, we calculated how much time they spent on discretionary activities. Um, And we approached that by being quite conservative and just counting those activities that more than 90% of people agreed was discretionary for themselves. But actually, the results hold when we look at 75% of people agree. But we wanted to be sure that we were capturing discretionary activities. And this included things like doing nothing. (laughs) Like people, there is a category in the survey of doing nothing, relaxing, watching TV. It also included more active leisure like exercise, um, playing sports, uh, going to watch sports, going to concerts, watching movies out Um, And it also included social um, connection, like spending time with family and friends. And what we did was we calculated for each individual in the data set how much time they spent on discretionary activities and their happiness. And from that, the graph showed that at least within this population, and I wouldn't hold my hat on the exact amount, but in that data, we were able to quantify it. What we found was that those with less than approximately two hours of discretionary time were less happy. Those with more than approximately five hours of discretionary time were less happy. And so uh, your question on the sweet spot, that suggests that between about two and five hours of discretionary time, There's actually not a relationship between how much time people have and their happiness. And that gets into, it's not about how much time you have so much except at the extremes. It's really how you spend that time. And I'd also say that actually in the more than five hours of discretionary time group, the too much time We actually didn't see that drop in happiness when those folks spent their discretionary time on ways that felt worthwhile and productive. So ways that felt, whether socially impactful, like spending time helping others, or actually really enriching. So we saw that when people had a really enriching, engaging hobby, and that's where they were spending their time, that you didn't see this drop off. You didn't see that more and more is better but you didn't see the too much time effect. And so I think that this is the quantities are helpful in the sense that it allows us to be more objective, right? So like even in the that sort of crazy period of my life where I had a 4-month-old and was an assistant professor working towards tenure, traveling to give talks, you know, when I was on the train that night even in that time, and still now, I'm like two hours of discretionary time. That sounds like such an indulgence. <laughs> There's like no way, but actually, it's not as out of reach as um, us who are so busy might think. Like I was thinking back on that that time, like calculating how the hours in my days or the minutes in my days that I spent on things that were absolutely that I loved to do, that I wanted to do, like. Cuddling with my four month old, you know, in the mornings, with 20 minutes of sort of getting him ready um, and cuddling on my walk home uh, from work. I was on the phone with my best friend. Sure, it would be fun to like sit over a glass of wine and chat, but I had that time talking to someone that I love so much. And then, like, dinner, dinner conversation with my husband. And then the other 20 minutes of, Singing my little baby to sleep. Adding those up, I had already an hour and a half, ninety minutes, of time in my super busy, you know, schedule of days that I wouldn't have wanted to spend in any other way. So that's to suggest that two hours isn't totally out of reach, and it's also to suggest and a lot of um, the answer, the solution to how we invest our time to be happier is yes, identifying the activities that are fulfilling, that are worthwhile for you. And we can talk about some of the ways to do that, but also when you're spending your time on those activities, it's paying attention so that you're soaking it up and getting, enjoying the happiness that is already there in the time that you're spending. So between those two things and we can absolutely and should absolutely unpack them, that's where we can make, get the most out of our time and feel as happy as possible with the time that we spend.
0: You know, I think what you describe, you know, you're having a phone call with your friend, you're catching up, you're spending time with your family, probably a time you would describe as, you know, as you did describe it, it was happy, it was enjoyable. And then I think about time, and then there are times in our day, our commute, probably not enjoyable, but they're inevitable. It's a reality. If you have a commute, you have a commute. Maybe it's a little bit easier now if you're working remotely or so on, but like if you have a commute, you have a commute. If you're doing school drop off and pick up, gotta do it. And so, can you talk about this idea of kind of reframing how we, cause you can reframing the parts of our day which are probably not enjoyable, but they are the reality of, of, Our day-to-day.
1: Totally. And I think even before getting to the reframing of like how do we make those unfun but necessary activities more fun and feel more worthwhile, it is helpful to talk about how you even identify what those sort of enjoyable, but I would actually enjoyable it sounds somewhat superficial as something that you're moving through, but really happy and worthwhile and fulfilling and satisfying those activities versus the wasteful activities. And the reason actually commuting um, the data shows that it feels like so unenjoyable is that it feels like a waste of time, like you're trying to get through it. And one of the, I mean, research looks at researchers looking to identify worthwhile and sort of happy and unhappy activities use time tracking. So over the course of people's days, track what they're doing, what activities they're spending their time on, as well as how they're feeling so that you can pull out and see that on average, the activities that tend to be associated with the most happiness um, are actually social connection from the research. It is time spent Genuinely connecting with other people, whether intimately, so physical intimacy is uh, sort of consistently among the heaviest activities, but not a lot of time is spent on it. Um, But spending time with friends and family, those colleagues even, um, or socially connecting activities, the least happy activities for the average American um, is commuting, to your point. It is also, sadly, hours spent at work tend to be among our least happy as um, doing housework. Now, That's helpful to understand averages um, based off of the research. But what's more helpful is for each of us as individuals to know for us, what are those activities that are most worthwhile? And that is, I suggest folks track their own time. And so I describe um, how to do this um, in great detail in the book. And there's even a worksheet that you can sort of pull off of my uh, website. And it's basically over the course of a week writing down what you're doing, the activities, and not just broadly like work, because as I'm sure you can relate to, some work hours and work activities are more satisfying and worthwhile than others. And not just socializing, right? As you're writing down, it's write down whom you're with and what you're doing. And in addition to that, Rating, as you come out of that activity, out of that time, rate on a 10 point scale, how happy, how satisfied do you feel? How fulfilled do you feel? How energized and all you can sort of collapse into a singular um, positivity, like happiness rating. And what's so great about this is that at the end of the week, you have this fantastic personalized data set for yourself. So you can look across and pull out what are those activities that got your highest ratings? And not only the specific activities, but what are some commonalities across those happiest activities? Um, And from that, you might see, you know, like, actually, when I'm outside, I'm really happy. Or when I'm engaging with people one-on-one, I'm really happy. And it's not just a general group setting. Um, And then you can also see your least happy activities. You can also see what activities you spend on that is sort of a waste and you might be like holy cow I spent a whole lot of time on X it's not even that fun it's getting like 4 or 5 on my ratings and it's not even necessary so that is a clear one you sort of lessen that time but commuting is something that If you're going to keep your job and if you are in a job that requires you to um, be back in the office, it's something that you have to do. And so I do share some strategies for those unhappy activities. And the simplest um, is actually bundling. And it's actually not about reframing. It is really about um, what bundling is, is based off of uh, research by... um, a wonderful colleague and friend of mine, uh, Katie Milkman. And it's a simple idea, but really effective. And basically what it is, is you bundle something that you don't want to do that is unfun, like commuting, and you bundle it with an activity that you do want to do, that's enriching and fun, like talking to a friend so a social connection uh, or listening to a podcast um, there you go <laughs> exactly or listening to an audiobook um you know actually in doing the work on uh, among folks who don't feel like they have enough time to do what they want to do i asked them to complete the sentence i don't have time to reading for pleasure is one of the sort of top activities that people say they don't have time to do um But if on your commute, every time you're in the car, you are listening to an audiobook, then you do get through books. You get through a book or two um, every couple of weeks. And with the listening to podcasts, instead of a commute where you're sort of shuffling through channels and sort of getting through the time in a podcast, you learn something. It's enriching. And so you like I mean, I'm sure folks have had that experience. Like you actually even get to work, but you stay in your car a little longer because you want to (laughs) hear the rest of what's being said. So all of a sudden that time that felt like a waste and that you're just trying to get through feels worthwhile and it's enriching. And so that is a very sort of simple but effective strategy um, to make that time more fun.
0: So if you look at, meaningful IRL connection whether it's with a loved one or friend that seems to be near the top of the list in terms of that I'll put it in the happy bucket and then commuting <laughs> it, it seems to be lower on the list for, for everyone I'm curious where does exercise sit
1: exercise is an interesting one uh, in the average American bucket it falls on the more positive side um but that is uh, what is, I think, more helpful is looking at all the research that shows just how positive of a mood booster exercise is. Not only because that research is looking at um, the the time tracking research is looking at how you feel while doing it. Um, But the thing that exercise does is it has, and this is actually a wonderful observation that comes out of um, folks doing their own time tracking is you see that like not only like oh you you can look at like what activities made me happy, but you also see patterns like what days did I see like on average higher happiness ratings. Oftentimes you can like pick up it's like oh the whole day is on average, happier after I've exercised in the morning or after I've gotten a good night's sleep. So you can see some of these really wonderful carryover effects. So exercise is, is um, something, is an activity that has been shown empirically to be a mood booster. Um, it helps offset anxiety, helps offset depression, and it increases self-esteem and um, and it's actually, so in, uh, we didn't talk about, uh, that actually this book came out of a course that I developed for MBAs at UCLA, applying the science of happiness to life design. And, uh, in the course, I give these assignments each week, experiential assignments. So, um, that my students can experience the interventions that science has, um, sort of, uh, empirically validated, but so that they can feel the experience themselves. And in Happier Hour, in my book, I give these assignments. Of course, you know, readers don't get a grade like my students do, but they do get the experience of it. And one of the assignments I gave my students is to exercise <laughs> for a week. Um, and uh, so that folks can experience the impact. Um, and it is it is a significant impact. Um, and also actually picking up on looking across the patterns of my students' data. Exercise, yes, but also figuring out for you as an individual, what is the form of exercise? And for me, it also involves getting outside. Um, And research shows there's actually this really fascinating study that came out of the UK that used geolocation data. And so they could see across, um, I think it was like hundreds of thousands of people where they were at any moment. And they would ping them and ask, how happy are you feeling right now? And what they saw was a significant influence of simply being outside compared to in being inside, and a significant positive influence. So people are happier when they're outside. And yes, people are even happier when it's sunny out than when it's bad weather. They're even happier when they're in a natural environment than versus an urban environment. But pulling those effect sizes away, simply being outside has its own mood-boosting effect. Um, so exercise is good. And also... As I mentioned, I asked people to complete this sentence, I don't have time to. So reading for pleasure is a is a is one of the frequently mentioned ones. What is actually most frequently mentioned is exercise. Exercise is that thing that people neglect when they don't feel like they have time.
0: Not our audience. They're out there and so, and so... I'm curious: Is there a relationship between duration of exercise and happiness? In other words, so in the same way, you start to have diminished. Like, are there? Do, do you, at a certain level of time, do you have diminishing returns?
1: On all activities, you have diminishing. <laughs> Returns.
0: but is it like if you can do an hour like anything after an hour does it does this max out
1: yeah I don't I don't actually know if they have shown I mean I do know that the um, guidance is at least 30 minutes of exercise a day um, but I don't know I think that's more to get people doing it as opposed to what's the direct effect so I'll to say I actually don't know um, uh, more specifically about the the perfect amount of exercise.
0: Well, it's probably similar to what you said before. It's 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 too much and too little. It, it, as I think about the problem with time, too much free time, too little time, exercise for five minutes, probably not going to have the impact you want. And if you exercise for six hours, that's not problem. <laughs> it may also not have the type of impact you're looking for in terms of your happiness.
1: Yeah. But I mean, I wouldn't actually put the lower limit on it. I think any exercise is good, um, particularly, and if it, given that for many, maybe not your listeners, for many, the barrier is this sense that I don't have enough time. And so if you're like, oh, I will only exercise if I do have a full hour, um, then I actually, I, I would, I would suggest getting that idea out of your head that just getting out there, because what happens is, um when people, if you feel like you don't have enough time, when you actually do spend the time to exercise, then it can actually make you feel like you have enough time, which is, and you're like, what are you talking about? And I can explain. So what time poverty is, it's this acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. So with that, it's a feeling, right? It's a subjective sense of not having enough time, being limited from being able to do what you set out to do. Both of those are subjective. Like being what you set out to do is up to you and the list that you make, um, and also the confidence in being able to accomplish those things is also a subjective sense. Now, what exercise does? Is it increases a sense of self efficacy, of self esteem? It increases that confidence. And so I share um, in, in the book, Happier Hour, as, because my <laughs> very personal example is when I don't feel like I have enough time, going for a morning run is one of the first things that gets kicked off my list. Um, but if I make the time, like I'm on the run and I'm like, all of a sudden, it's like you start feeling like that sense of efficacy. Like you, you feel good. I feel good. And I'm out there. The sun is rising and I am like, oh, I can do this day. Like this day that is in front of me, like bring it. I can do it. And it increases what it, so what not limitation or sense of limitation of time gets lessened and your sense of expansion of what you can do um, increases. And so we actually uh, found not in the case of exercise, but um, in something else of actually spending time to help others, that's also something when we feel like we don't have enough time, we don't slow down to help others, but we have studies that show that actually when you do spend some time to help another person. It makes you feel like you have more time. And the reason is because it increases your sense of self-efficacy. You're like, oh my gosh, I was able to help this person and accomplish a lot in the time that I spent. And that expands your sense of how much you can accomplish in your time more generally, increasing your sense of time affluence.
0: Yeah, I want to stay on that. I think it's so interesting because I, I keep on coming back to to quality, and it is it is all time created equal? You know, for, like the example you use. If I spend an hour volunteering, it, it, one, I think I think what you said about perception is fascinating. And then two is to me that time doesn't feel like it's equal to maybe a commute. That if I'm volunteering and getting great fulfillment out of that one hour, that's like. Or three hours, or uh, you know, I'm curious about novelty and you know the awe that you experience. If you have a, if you have an awe moment or an event that is really novel and fulfilling, it seems to me like maybe that's not shouldn't be weighted like the mundane of the everyday. It, it, does that make sense?
1: Totally. And then I'm excited that you brought that up because it's something that uh, I think is needs to be addressed. Because yes, novelty is good. And let me explain. Um, because what I also, I think a really important message is that people recognize within the quote-unquote mundane, within the ordinary... There's a lot of potential happiness that we're missing out on because we're not paying attention to it, simply because we're not paying attention to it. So hedonic adaptation, what that is, it is the fact that we all have the shared psychological propensity to get used to stuff over time. So doing the same thing over and over again, spending time with the same person again and again. We get used to things, we adapt. And our ability and propensity to adapt is really good when we are uh, faced with negative circumstances, right? It makes it so that we can become resilient um, and more tolerant. Um, But the bad thing is that we also get used to the good stuff. We get used to the good stuff such that we stop paying attention. And so like using a really extreme example, it's like, think about the very first time your partner told you that they loved you. It's like fireworks in your heart and in your mind. And then it's like a year or two on those words, I love you get shortened to love you. And words that you sort of say as you're hanging up the phone or walking out the door, and you don't even like hear the words really as they're being said um so like something as profound as expressing love we get used to it and then also even in the more mundane you can think of like eating ice cream (laughs) that first bite is like divine the fourth bite still pretty good by bite 10 you're like thinking about other things and probably by you know whatever. At the end of the tub, you're like feeling ill. Um, so we get used to things. And so as you're thinking about, um, ways to offset this hedonic adaptation such that we don't, so though, so that we continue to enjoy the good stuff, that's where novelty actually comes into play. So research shows that within relationships, couples who do engage in novel experiences together, um, sh- report greater relationship satisfaction. And there's, uh, they show uh, greater longevity in their relationships. And that's because it's like, by doing novel things together, um, then you are sort of continuing to pay attention, continuing to grow, having new stimuli and experiences that you share together. And the the other person is wrapped into that. If you think about it with exercise, I'm sure folks can relate to this too. It's like, I actually moved to Santa Monica, we were talking uh, before, um, six months ago, and my morning run is glorious. It's like, I am running along under these like beautiful like coral trees and then the end of my run is on the beach like overlooking the pacific ocean and i will admit like (laughs) six months in doing this um you know most mornings of the week even that like something as glorious as that i get used to it so how can you um implement strategies to offset our tendency to get used to even the most wonderful things. So for novelty, I could, you know, switch up what I do for my exercise, like maybe only do the run one morning a week and go somewhere else to run other mornings or implement like other, um, exercise patterns. Another thing is actually turning it into something that seems routine into a ritual, like making it special. And this is where reframing comes into, um, into play. It's like, and I uh, share, and the example that I share in my book is my coffee date with my daughter, uh, Lita, And this is something that is totally routine. And it actually was born out of a very functional routine of me wanting caffeine and stopping at a coffee shop on my way to drop my daughter off at her preschool on my way into my office. But what we did was we turned that routine into a ritual. It became special. So it's like we played the same songs each time we ordered she'd get her hot chocolate I'd get my flat white we'd get croissants and the you know hipster coffee shop folks who like (laughs) were initially really mad that we kept like messing up the cool vibe of the place they even came to like be part of this ritual and they um and it was special time and we talking about quality of time this is 30 minutes each week it's not a whole lot of time but it is so connecting because this is this time that is just she and I together. And we are just in this space and time together, delighting in each other's company. And by calling it a tradition, calling it a ritual, it, in, it pulls our attention in because it is meaningful and special. And that 30 minutes colors a lot of other time I spend throughout the week. So it's like, we look forward to this time, both of us. So even leading into the 30 minutes, there is happiness. Coming out of the 30 minutes, there's happiness because we sort of reflect on it and talk about it. Um, and so oftentimes these rituals are shared but they don't have to be. So if you like make your exercise or you know, a morning run, ritualize it, then it can, um, maintain its specialness for longer. But I also do think that the novelty and infusing variety is important for exercise in particular, um, over time.
0: How do you think about, to me, there's an important distinction as I think about time for me personally, Monday through Friday, and then the weekend. (laughs)
1: I would discourage you away from that um, framing because what it is that it sounds like it's having you do is sort of to get through the week for the weekend. But there's activities and time within all of the days of our week that are really sort of there and potential for fulfillment. And it's not just our leisure time or like time outside of work and time within work. You can also identify the time within your work that is truly joyful. So in your time tracking exercise, um, I'm sure, and I can say for me, sort of also reflecting back, also there's the reflecting moments of joy is another exercise that I share in the book, that my hours that I spend uninterrupted doing the work that i love like whether it is writing whether it is analyzing a data set that's showing me what makes people happy whether it is crafting a lecture that i'm going to be disseminating this knowledge about happiness to my students like in that time where i'm sort of uninterrupted by the inbox by requests from colleagues or whomever um, my phone is off. That time that I, what um, researcher Mahali Csikszentmihalyi refers to as flow, is truly satisfying. You know, you lose your sense of time. You come out of it, and that's where it's in those flow states that we're at our best. We are creating. We are producing. We are sort of living out um, our our potential. So that can happen during the week as well. And those moments are totally worthwhile. And so I would um, suggest away from this very sort of clear delineation of like week versus weekend or work versus not work. Um, and instead identify like use the exercises that I share um, and I walk folks through, to identify what are those activities that are really worthwhile and maximizing the time that you spend on them. Yes, some of that is about quantity, like prioritizing and making the time that's used so to make it sure that you do spend it. But it's also about how you engage in those activities so that you are paying attention, so that hedonic adaptation hasn't sucked out the potential happiness from that time that you're spending, even if it's something that is so seemingly mundane and ordinary as getting coffee, <laughs> you know, with your daughter um, or whatever it might be for, um, for you as an individual of like those moments of joy that are hidden. And I will say hidden because we've stopped paying attention to them in our daily life, but are right there ready to just be revealed. And if you're already spending the time for us, you know, super busy people, if you're spending the time, the worst thing you can do is miss out on these happy times that you're spending simply because you're distracted. And we are distracted a lot.
0: Yeah, that brings me up to the mobile phone. This seems like a terrible thing as I think about time management and happiness. And I've seen studies where some something the effect of, you know, if if you're, if you're, if you're in flow, if you're doing work, and then all of a sudden you go to your phone, it just like takes 10 or 20, it it just totally derails whatever you're doing.
1: Yeah. And it's, our phones are so helpful for so many things, but they are a huge distractor. And research shows that we are distracted about 50% of the time from what we're, yeah, 50. It's 47%, but it's almost 50. So that means we are not thinking about what we are currently doing almost half of the time. And also, this research shows that we are less happy when we are distracted from what we are doing. And so that's bad. And then, and I actually attribute a lot of it to our phones because interestingly, research shows that yes, the pings distract us, um, the incoming, you know, the pings, they distract us. But even the presence of the phone, there was a really cool study uh, conducted by Liz Dunn and her colleagues where they had groups of friends who were at a cafe dining and they had them either keep their phones on the table, not even using their phones, but just keeping the phones on the table versus putting their phones away and like, and, you know, in their backpack their purse. And they had some cover story so that people didn't quite know why. But the mere mere presence of the phones, the folks came out of that dining experience with their friends less happy. They enjoyed the experience less. And it was because they were more distracted. They were less engaged. So simply keeping your phone on the table where you like, because what it's doing is reminding you. Of all the other things you could and maybe, you know, quote unquote, should be doing at any moment. And what that does is it pulls you out of the moment that you're spending. So yeah, there is no way you're going to get into flow. Um, But also those like joyful moments that you're spending with the people you love, (laughs) like you're missing it. If what you're thinking about is your to-do list or like what other people are doing on their social media feeds, you know? So yeah, it, it's really important to manage that distraction um, so that we enjoy the happy time that we are spending.
0: So of all the research you've conducted personally or, or you've you read while writing the book, what stood out? What what stood above the rest where your, your jaw dropped? You said, I really can't believe that's true.
1: Um, we, well, we've touched on it um, already. And it's this combination of more time isn't better, like more uh, available hours in our days to do whatever we wanted isn't better. Um, and I also that coupled with um my research that shows actually how much happiness is available to us in our ordinary experiences. So we did work looking at how much happiness we enjoy from extraordinary experiences, which includes things like, you know, amazing vacations or life milestones or going to concerts, these sort of like extraordinary experiences. Uh, versus the happiness we get from ordinary experiences, like those simple moments shared with a loved one, like, Noticing the sun rising um, or even enjoying a treat like a glass of wine <laughs> you know um, and what we looked at and what we found was really interesting that there was an influence of age on the relative happiness, so young people, they experience greater happiness from extraordinary experiences. Of
0: I think about all the dumb things i did in my 20s and teens like let's do it this is a fantastic idea
1: and it was really fun and it was really
0: fun and terrible and (laughs) oh my god i'm thankful i'm alive
1: um and then what we saw was actually extraordinary experiences continue to make older people happy it might the extraordinary experience might be like an amazing trip to paris instead of you know your crazy taking our kids to
0: disney world for the first time which (laughs) i don't know i don't know how that's going to fit in we'll talk in a couple months (laughs) if that happens but
1: um well that will be extraordinary for all but also within that so the happiness from ordinary experiences Increases as people age, such that we found among our older participants, they experienced as much happiness from simple, ordinary moments compared to uh, the extraordinary moments. And um, that is significant because it's not about age per se. It's as people get older, they also recognize that their time in life is limited. And so they start to pay more attention to the time that they're spending. And so we found that among young people, when they were reminded that actually their time in life is limited and finite, then you saw them enjoy as much happiness from these ordinary experiences as the extraordinary. Now, I think this is really powerful because it goes back to what I've suggested before is that there is so much happiness that's right there in the time that we're already spending if we but notice when we savor those simple moments. And so this all is sort of going back to, it's not about how much time we have, it's how we spend it. It's not about being time rich. It's about making the time that we have and that we spend rich.
0: So... How should I be thinking? I think I'll, I'm 48 in a couple of weeks. So by the time this airs, I think I'll be 48. So h- how should birthday. I be? Thank you. I still have a while to go. Still a couple of weeks, but thank you. Uh, how should I be thinking about, should I shoot for one or two extraordinary events a year? And ten, like, is there a relation between quantity in terms of extraordinary events versus...
1: No, I mean, and also the more extraordinary events, they become more ordinary, right? Because of the hedonic adaptation. And we actually see, uh, not my research, but research has shown that people with a whole lot of wealth um, savor less because even extraordinary, you know, like the trip to Paris becomes more ordinary. So... The the solution is whether it's something extraordinary that you're so lucky to get to experience or these ordinary is paying attention, recognizing that they are not forever, taking breaks. That's another way to offset hedonic adaptation, infusing variety, but also just actually counting the times left and recognizing that, holy cow, this, too, is in fact, limited, and that draws your attention and increases um, tendency to savor.
0: Well, I, I think that's so interesting because, as you point out, wealth wealth is not always equals happiness It does not equal happiness. and 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 it, I like this idea of, you know, you use a story of you know your time with your daughter and grabbing coffee and turning that into a ritual. And I also think of that as that there's a way to make this ordinary, mundane, routine a ritual and to some extent make it extraordinary like there's lots you can do in that coffee but mo- like it's an ordinary moment but there's lots of ways you can make it really special and novel you to know, a new coffee shop you know you can go shop it. like you can you can it, it's and i think that's a hell of a lot more sustainable as you think about our happiness in the long term versus let's do this extraordinary crazy expensive thing which you know to your point there's so many Extraordinarily wealthy people who are extraordinarily unhappy.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, And the research shows um, money does not, um, is not, more and more money doesn't lead to more and more happiness. And uh, to your point, it's, there's so much extraordinary happiness that is right there in the ordinary. And if you reflect back and think, when did I last feel absolute joy? I'm sure for so many, it was something that was ordinary. Like maybe it was the awe from noticing that amazing sunset, or maybe it was the awe from seeing your kids' delight the first time they walked onto, you know, Disney World and meeting Mickey. There is so much extraordinary happiness if. If we but notice, and if we don't notice, and if we don't savor it, then it's past and it's lost, and you know it's it's a missed moment. And a lot of um, the the work that were the sort of happiness work, and actually was really picked up uh, in uh, in the course as well as in in writing the book, that a lot of it is about avoiding regret. So yes, we want to be happy, but what we really don't want is to look back on our years and wish we had done something else um, or wish that we had paid more attention. And one of the exercises that I have uh, and that I encourage folks to do is to Identify something, someone who's towards closer to the end of their life whom, from your perspective, has done it right, who's lived a good life and who seems happy, and interview them, ask them, what was your greatest source of pride? And also, what was your greatest source of regret? And in having my students do this over the years, I've compiled the responses from these really admired elders who have succeeded in so many dimensions. And the consistency of what people share as what they're most proud of is remarkable. It's like 75% of these folks say that the thing they're most proud of is their relationships, oftentimes with their family. Um, And the thing that they regret most is not spending enough time in those relationships or cultivating those relationships. And I think that that is... (laughs) is notable for us as we're making decisions now about how we spend our hours, but it's informed by what life we want to live. Um, And taking that broader perspective, and we have found in my research that people who actually take a broader perspective of their time, thinking in terms of their years and their life overall, instead of hour by hour, they're happier because actually, and they also uh, report greater meaning in their life and greater satisfaction in their life. And they're happier because they spend their hours on what's important rather than just what seems urgent. And what's important gets picked up in whether it's a time tracking or reflecting on moments of joy or asking an elder what they are most proud of, Um, all of these exercises that I share across um, the book, uh, happier hour, but it is by understanding what matters to you. What are your values? What is your purpose? And we haven't even talked about purpose.
0: Let's close with purpose.
1: It is important to understand what our purpose is. And what that means is what is your overarching goal? Like what. Are you striving for? And it has to be individual to you because that's where your source of intrinsic motivation comes from versus extrinsic, which is less motivating and less sustainable. But um, one of the exercises that I share in the book is the five whys exercise, which allows sort of leads one to identify their purpose with the first why being like sort of oftentimes this is in a professional Um, setting, but I can absolutely apply more generally, is what do you do, you know, for your work? And then the next why is, well, why that? And then the next why is your answer to that is like, well, why is that important? And once you've asked yourself these sort of five levels of why, oftentimes you get at the really sort of true source of what drives you. What do you care about? And it's so helpful to identify that because that informs what activities you take on. It informs what uh, things you make time for. And also it helps reframe. So some of those unfun things, once you're like, oh, actually this is in line with what I personally am striving for, then it makes it feel less wasteful and more worthwhile, which in itself makes it feel more fun. And so... And yet another exercise that I encourage folks to do, which is pretty poignant, is writing your eulogy. So projecting to the end of your life and looking back, how do you want to be remembered? What what are the words you want someone to describe you as? And in writing your eulogy, this isn't an exercise about death. It's actually about your life. What life do you want to live? And clarifying that or articulating that allows you to clarify what does matter to you what is your goal um and with that that informs how you like the life you want to live informs how you spend your next hours
0: fascinating cassie thank you so much
1: thank you